This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. Welcome to News from Midlands University, a program by Northwood University. I'm Kristen Stehauer, Academic Vice President and Provost, and we have a great format for you today. We have some panelists talking about some issues that affect us individually as citizens and collectively as a society. And the topics that we'll be talking about today are the national and international supply chain, the U.S. economy, and also energy policy. And we have some panelists who bring learning alive for our students at Northwood University. Each of them teaches in our undergraduate classes and we're so glad to have you here. We have Dr. Michael Makovi, who is a professor of economics and one of our inaugural Bretzloff scholars focusing on free market economics. Dr. Jason Hayes, director of energy policy from the Mackinac Center for Public Policy and someone who teaches classes on environmental policy for our students at Northwood University and Dr. Kevin McCormick, director, uh, sorry, a professor of operations and supply chain management and somebody who's, all of them are actually sought after as nationally and internationally as experts in their field. So thank you gentlemen for joining us. We're pleased to have you. We'll have a lively conversation, I'm sure. So I'd like to start, uh, Michael, with you on what the greatest challenges are we're facing in our economy today. Uh, well, there's a lot of them, uh, but probably the one that most people are thinking about today is inflation. Uh, so I'll talk about where that's coming from and what we can think about that. Uh, so often when inflation happens, uh, everyone likes to blame a million different things, especially politicians love to blame everyone but the government. Uh, but the thing to realize first and foremost is uh, what Milton Friedman said, which is inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than an output. In other words, oh, sorry. Oh, no, that's great. Uh, <laughs> you're on a roll. I don't want to stop you. But that brings to mind recently you gave a fascinating lecture on campus as professional development for the faculty and staff at Northwood. And we'd love to hear some highlights on that because you did focus on inflation. Right. So the big idea is that ultimately inflation is driven by the supply of money. The more money there is, the more there's money chasing the same number of goods. And so prices are ultimately going to increase. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only thing that can change prices. Clearly, supply chain problems affect prices. So if you have like OPEC's oil embargo a few decades ago, obviously COVID affected supply chains a lot. Uh, for a while, there was the ship stuck in the Suez Canal. So when Friedman said that ultimately inflation is driven by the money supply, he didn't mean only the money supply affects prices. Like clearly supply and demand of ordinary goods does as well. But in general, if you're going to have a persistent, ongoing, continuous inflation, 
you can't explain it by supply chain problems unless you think those supply chain problems are continuous, persistent, and never abating. Like, presumably, if COVID were the cause of all of our increased prices, we would have seen the highest inflation during the worst period of COVID, and then it, prices would have subsided back to what they had been before. Maybe with some delay, maybe it's like we wouldn't, maybe it wouldn't be like, oh, the vaccine is out, bam, instantly prices fall. But at least you would have expected to see prices fall back to what they had been in 2019. But that's not what we're seeing. Instead, inflation became its worst after COVID was mostly over, and it's been continuing on since then, long after we would have might have expected it to end. And no one, not even the Federal Reserve, thinks that we're ever gonna get prices back to the 2019 level. The talk is how can we slow the rate of increase, not how can we bring it back to what prices had been before. So all of that is an indication that what we're primarily seeing is not supply side driven um, price increases. Instead, what we're seeing is money supply. And so here we can see, this is a graph of the GDP impl implicit price deflator, which is just a price index based on all goods and services, and it's the rate of increase. Uh, the gray bar is basically COVID. So you can actually see during COVID, we actually had some deflation. So there's actually some negative rate of increase, and then the rate of increase has gotten higher and higher as time has gone on. So it's like the, the farther we get away from COVID, the bigger the inflation becomes, which just doesn't fit. And here, though, is the money supply. Uh, there's a few different measures of it. Uh, what's called M1 and M2. Um, different things are considered money, like is a savings account money or is only a checking account. So, but either way you cut it, we've been having a sharp increase in the money supply during COVID. And then ever since then, it keeps on going up a little bit more. So this is a better explanation for what the price increases we're seeing. Well, yeah, so um, on a, the employment rate definitely is playing into this, right? So. Um, how does that affect inflation and what, what have we been seeing? So in, first I'll say in the long run, there's no relationship between inflation and unemployment. In the long run, unemployment is more determined by structural factors in the economy such as labor market regulations, such as the minimum wage or labor unions, uh, things like that, or also like the age of the population. Younger people tend to quit their jobs and then spend some time unemployed looking for a better job more often than older people do. So more structural factors like that in the long run uh, determine how many people are employed. In the short run, unexpected inflation can reduce the unemployment rate if people don't perceive the inflation for what it is. So if there's suddenly some unexpected inflation, businesses think they're making higher revenues and profits, and they don't realize that eventually their costs of production are going to be increasing. So it's so, a false sense of... Right, it's a false sense. So then the businesses want to hire more workers. They offer some pay raises. The workers think that they're getting real pay raises, and by real I mean in terms of um, inflation-adjusted purchasing power. So they're more willing to take jobs than they otherwise would have been. Everyone thinks we're in an economic boom. Everything seems awesome. Eventually, that we realize the inflation for what it is, because the inflation's not even across the board at first. It takes time for newly created money to trickle its way through the whole economy. So some prices increase faster and sooner than others. Eventually, we all realize what's happening. People realize they took jobs that they might have otherwise not been willing to take. Businesses realize they hired people whom they otherwise would not have been willing to hire. 
and then you get layoffs, you may even get a recession, but at least you go back to the, the normal equilibrium situation and you don't get any permanent reduction in unemployment from the inflation. So that's called the natural rate of unemployment, uh, which Friedman said in the long run, money, any amount of money can equally accomplish any economic purpose. It doesn't matter, it's like using inches and centimeters doesn't make a difference. Well, it doesn't matter whether a car costs a dollar or a car costs a million dollars. So it eventually reaches an equilibrium. Right. Every price, all that matters is the proportion of every price to every other price, and it doesn't matter what the unit of measure is. That's enlightening, I think, for our viewers. And a similar thing happens uh, with interest rates. In the long run, interest rates are going to be determined by the supply and demand of loanable funds. Now, in the short run, you can, incre you can decrease interest rates with an unexpected increase in the, the supply of money because then banks suddenly have um, excess loanable funds and they have to either find people to borrow that money and cut the interest rate or the bank might invest the excess loanable funds in bonds, but when you buy bonds, you reduce their uh, yield, so you reduce their interest rate. Either way, you get an, a temporary reduction in the interest rate, but in the long run, what ends up happening is all that extra money just increases asset prices. So let's say if you, let's say if you suddenly increase the supply of money, you cut mortgage interest rates. Well, then when the mortgage interest rates are lower, people are willing to spend more money on a house because now they're, they can keep their monthly payment the same as before. Well, if everyone tries to spend more money on a house, the price of a house goes up. And we're seeing that right now, right? right? And then right, the so interest that, rates are going up and, and the houses aren't selling as quickly. Right, so you quickly discover, oh great, my interest rate's been cut in half, but now the house costs twice as much, so now I have to borrow twice as much money to buy a house. Well, now that extra demand for a house drives up the interest rate. It's so like we saw that in like 2008 when the housing bubble eventually burst because those low interest rates couldn't be sustained with the higher housing prices. So eventually that whole thing bursts and eventually you end up right back at equilibrium with interest rates being determined by more structural factors of um, the supply and demand of loanable funds. Uh, so there too, economic booms are temporary, they burst themselves, we either, the boom either leads to a recession or at best the boom just kind of peters itself out. Any other points that you'd like to make, Michael? Uh, so I'd say if ultimately then if the inflation comes from expansions of the money supply, the problem we get is a lot of times now monetary policy is tied up with fiscal policy. Congress wants to spend more money than the IRS collects in taxes. The only way you can make that up is either Congress can borrow the difference, but then that just means it has to be paid back later. And so that still just means taxes have to be raised to pay off the debt or money can be printed out of thin air. So that's called debt monetization. Um, and either by printing the money out of thin air, you can reduce uh, the level of privately held debt, or by continually uh, monetizing that debt, they keep the interest rates low. So if every time the Federal Reserve buys a bond, it creates the money out of thin air to pay for it, that extra demand for bonds reduces their yield. So now the interest rate is lower and now the cost of servicing that debt is lower. So long story short, Congress is keeping the burden of the debt low by pressuring the Federal Reserve to cr keep creating new money to pay it off or keep the interest rate low. So we're not going to be able to stop inflation in the long run unless we cut Congress's spending. We're gonna have to, be, and then the hard part there though is most of the debt that we're going into is because of things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. 
we're, we're basically going into debt to pay for the groceries. So it's like you can either pay your taxes through the IRS or you can pay your taxes through inflation, but one way or another, they're both a tax and you gotta cut spending. Yeah, that's a very clear and concise way of uh, describing the impacts and it definitely comes full circle back to the money supply point that you made at the very beginning. So thank you, Dr. Makovi. We appreciate that and we can see why your students enjoy your classes so much. Well, We're going to shift you. gears. Yeah, you're welcome. We're going to shift gears to energy policy with Dr. Jason Hayes and not a doctor. It's well, I stopped at the master's degree. So well, I, you have the knowledge base of <laughs> um, of, of uh, somebody at that level. So, uh, and we appreciate you uh, joining us and interested in um, energy supply and the impact on the economy. Yeah, thank you for having me. I enjoy the the opportunity and. So uh, as energy uh, supply goes, uh, one of the, the questions that was asked in the, the opening uh, when, when we were preparing was, what is the impact of energy supply on the economy, international, national, uh, state level? So internationally, what we have is energy policy that's developed. We have things like COP27, the Conference of Parties that's happening in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt here coming up this week. We have other things like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you know, scientists and policymakers getting together to study the impacts of greenhouse gases on, on emissions and that, uh, sorry, on uh, the climate. And then when it comes down to actual policy, we have at the international level things like the Paris Accord that have been passed and various countries sign in and take part and say we're going to cut uh, emissions. And so when they say they're cutting emissions, that impacts on the energy policies they implement in their domestic markets. And so that's an international impact. Nationally, we have things like the Biden administration just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Well. We can, we can argue, I'm sure most of us would argue whether that actually will reduce inflation, but it also had a great deal of spending on things like green energy. It's gonna promote wind and solar and those sorts of things, and it's pushing to cut back the use of oil and gas. So that's how that's impacting uh, energy policy. They also do things like uh, tax credits, the, protect, the production tax credit or the intermittent tax credit are two types of tax credits that governments will put in place to uh, promote spending or development of, in this case, production tax credits primarily for wind, the intermittent tax credits primarily for solar. They have other things through the Clean Air Act, the 45, Section 45Q uh, tax credits for things like carbon dioxide capture and, and sequestration. So that's at the national level. And then at the state level, we have things like Governor Whitmer put in place her My Healthy Climate Plan. And uh, that is pushing the idea that the state should go to net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. And so that impacts, you know, should we be using coal and natural gas or should we be going only to wind and solar? Those kind of questions get answered. And, and then, Jason, with all these policies, what, is, what are citizens feeling from that? Uh, there's a mix. You, depending on who you talk to, some are very excited about it. They love the idea that we're going green and, and that sort of thing. And then others, uh, like we were talking about before we came in the room, there's some questions whether solar and wind 
can actually meet the goals that have been set for them. And so, um, you know, we try and wonder, like, what do all these green policies actually get us? At the national level, we're seeing in Europe, they're undergoing an energy crisis. So while they are, in some senses, cutting emissions and changing their fuel mix and switching from coal to natural gas or something like that, uh, most many of the, the EU countries have cut their own domestic uh, production of natural gas. And so what that's done is the only countries that are still producing are in that area, and that neck of the woods is Russia. And so we have now Russian aggression in Ukraine, and the response from the, the world has been, well, we're going to you know, limit the amount of natural, Russian natural gas that can be imported. And so Europe right now is exposed to a huge energy crisis. As they're coming into the winter, a lot of these countries are terrified that we won't be able to keep the lights on and the heat on for our, for our citizens. So prices are going way up, not only for natural gas, but for electricity. And uh, you know they're still bringing in Russian natural gas. They're trying to get uh, American LNG shipped across the ocean. So that's at the, the international level. Domestically, we've seen things like $5 gas this summer is hitting everybody in their pocketbooks and hitting them hard. So now gas is down a little bit, but it still is like, I believe, around 60% higher than it was when President Biden took office, despite the fact that he's telling us that it's, well, it was $5 when he came into office. It was actually around 2:30 when he came into office. So. Another aspect at the national level, we're seeing uh, distillates shortages. Distillates are diesel, jet fuel, and heating oil. So if you're planning to buy anything at a grocery store in the next several months, well, you need diesel fuel to get that, uh, those groceries and those supplies into the stores. If you're planning to fly anywhere, well, the distillate shortage is going to hit your plane ticket. So. That's a national level. And then at a state level, right now we're seeing, because of things like the My Healthy Climate Plan and the push to shut down Line 5, we're seeing some of the highest electricity rates in the nation, it, like uh, Michigan has. Uh, certainly we're higher than all of our adjacent Great Lakes state neighbors. So those are the impacts. Like what have our policies gotten us? Yes, in some ways we've reduced emissions, but in a lot of other ways, we're paying through the nose for these things. Thank you. I think definitely our viewers will be able to relate to that because we're feeling right. it so personally. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I brought a few pictures. One of the, the other issues that uh, people often don't realize, they're told that these green policies are going to help the environment. But the reality is what we're seeing is uh, pictures that I have here at uh, the top left. This is uh, an example of what it looks like when you refine uh, rare earth minerals in China. China does not have the same level of environmental protections that we have in North America. So they're allowed to just dump uh, these uh, refinery, the toxic waste from refineries onto the ground. We're seeing wind turbine blades that are wearing out and beginning to delaminate. We don't have ways to recycle them. So what do we do with them? Well, right now we just dig a big hole and we dump them there and then we pour 
dirt over them and hope that it goes away. So we're seeing those same issues that the other industries, energy industries, have always been criticized for, like, well, you're just polluting. Okay, well, we're seeing the exact same thing from environmental movement. And then uh, the picture of the, the couple looking at their, their energy bill, that's exactly what I just talked about, raising electricity prices. So, um, and then we're also told that this new green energy is going to make energy not only affordable, but very reliable. But yet we're seeing California, Texas, even in Michigan in January 2019 when we had the polar vortex, which what I, when I was growing up in Canada was always just called winter. We had cold weather in the winter, but we had a, a restriction on supply of natural gas in that polar vortex, and every one of us in Michigan got the text message that said, please turn down your thermostat to 65 degrees or lower. Well, that's what happens when you restrict supplies of reliable, affordable energy and try to go to less reliable, or, or what is often called reliably unreliable, wind and solar. So those are the, the, the points. We're focused only on, we, we say we're protecting the environment, but we only focus on CO2 and we forget a lot of the other environmental issues associated with these energy sources. We ignore mining and refining costs and the impacts there. We harm the average citizen by raising electricity prices, but reducing reliability and stability of the electricity system. And then how do we survive all of this? That's the next big question, because when I give presentations like this, I just, in Grand Ledge, was speaking to the, the chamber. And at the end of my presentation, the first comment was, well, that was depressing. And I go, okay, but I have an answer for you. There's ways to, to solve this. And so for the, the Northwood uh, group, you'll be happy to know that McNair Center and Mackinac Center have partnered together to produce a paper on the value of natural gas, which is coming out here in a few weeks and should be available. So anybody who's familiar with McNair Center and Tim Nash's work, you can find it there or look on the Mackinac Center's website, mackinaw.org, and you'll be able to find some answers. There's hope. Reliable, affordable energy is the way we should go. Well, thank you so much for that hopeful ending, <laughs> and we truly appreciate the close collaboration and partnership mm -hmm. that we have between Northwood University and the Mackinac Center for Public Policy yep. and your personal engagement in that. So thank yeah, you. Happy yeah. to do it. Great points. And interestingly enough, our next panelist, Dr. Kevin McCormick, has a background in the energy industry himself and um, is a supply chain expert. And I think one thing that uh, in recent times we've lived through and uh, it's, it's come up uh, about the, pan the effect of the pandemic on inflation or, or perceived effects and maybe non-effect. But Kevin, could you help us make sense of what happened at the initial stages of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic and supply chain disruptions? Yeah. <clears throat> sure, after the, these two <laughs> get through beating me up, um, we built a supply chain the last 30 years that was really stretched across the globe. And when you stretch, like stretch a rubber band and your mother says, don't do that, Kevin, it'll snap in your face. That's what happened to the supply chain. Uh, the pandemic caused governments to shut down supply, uh, starting in China and work its way across, across the globe. And we're connected to China 
maybe 80% of what we buy in this country comes from China or Indonesia or Vietnam. So um, when they started shutting down, we had a couple months of goods in transit and uh, it really didn't affect the United States. And then uh, when they started up, you had a couple months to wait. So um, this artificial shutdown, it wasn't COVID, it was the government shutting down uh, China, Italy, Indonesia, shutting ports. Uh, the port of LA, for example, shut down first in California. And we get, I think 80% of what we get from China comes through the port of LA. So um, as everything shut down, the demand didn't go anywhere. We still had the demand. People shifted to Amazon, ordered more uh, as they're trapped in their houses. And um, you know, toilet paper became short, paper towels became short. Now, um, you know, what do we do about it? I think that's what we're looking for. What do we do about inflation? What do we do about not being able to get what you want? Um, I, I get a certain type of juice for breakfast. They used to have 12 different kinds on the shelf. Now there's only one. Why? They start to reduce the number of things you can get. Uh, you have fewer choices. It's more expensive. Uh, the supply chain starting to start up again. Uh, maritime shipping from China is on large ships with large containers. Uh, it takes a couple months to get here. Used to be a month and a half reliably. Now it's three months unreliable. So uh, my point being, this variability... Um, is this the new normal, Kevin? Uh, well, it's a wave. It's called the bullwhip effect. It starts out with shutdowns in supply, demand is still up here, so people start doubling their order. Oh, I can't get what I want, but I can double my order and I'll get it in three months and I'll stock up on it. So this big wave is coming across the supply chain now. And uh, summer clothes are arriving in Walmart right now. What do you do with summer clothes? From last summer. <laughs> From last summer, right. So, you know, you've got a discount, you've got to store it. Uh, you have twice the materials come in uh, that you anticipated. You don't have any place to store it. So this wave is starting to wash through the supply chain. And it'll take uh, another year or so to settle down. People will start to say, oh, you know, okay, I can't get 12 different types of juices, but I can get three. So instead of buying six, I'll buy three because I know next week it'll be there. So this, this kind of... Um, Insur not insurance, but you know, confidence in the reliability of the supply chain comes and goes all the time. And uh, what's going to change? I think that's what we're looking for. What can we do to change this? Uh, companies are saying, well, I'm, gonna, I'm only going to buy things within the U.S. You can't do it. It's impossible. Uh, so what's the next step? Rather than stretching the rubber band all the way to China, from Michigan, you have to maybe stretch some of it, but you have smaller rubber bands. You get more regional suppliers, more national suppliers. You don't have to go through the port of LA for everything. You start to blend it and think about the risk. Uh, for example, the, the uh, microprocessor issue that everybody in the automotive industry whined and cried about. Uh, why did it happen? Uh, they, they contracted out to board manufacturers to make inexpensive control boards, and those board manufacturers found inexpensive chips that were 10 years old that were made in China. 
and they all, all the board manufacturers were competitive, but they all bought the same chip from Taiwan Semiconductor. So when they shut down in Taiwan, uh, the board makers were still working. When the automotive people shut down, Taiwan said, how come you don't want this? So this balance started waving. And uh, now they're saying, oh, oh my God, what, what can we do? How can we bring semiconductors to the US? Uh, all this kind of overreaction. So what can we do? Uh, look at your supply chain, eliminate the risk, uh, balance it with other sources, you know, modify your expectations. And the higher prices from supply chain is gonna come and go. From infl inflation, now I'm depressed, it's gonna be here forever. <laughs> but uh, supply chain price increases and shortages are gonna come and go. And we'll have a stronger supply chain in the next couple of years. More resilient, more, more varieties, uh, more environmentally sound. I mean, uh, CO2 production through automotive sources and maritime sources, everybody's working on it, has been for years. It's gonna to continue to go down. So I, I'm optimistic. It's gonna cost more, it'll be better. And uh, our graduates at Northwood that are in, in supply chain are gonna have good jobs and they they're gonna solve the world's problems. They are sought after, that's for sure. Well, thank you, yep. Kevin. And I'd like to do a quick lightning round because there's such a confluence of, uh, of these topics together. So maybe one takeaway you had from each other uh, in terms of the content that you covered and, and a takeaway that relates to your area of expertise. So why don't we start with you, Michael? Well, one thing I, I'm thinking, Jason, I wonder if you'll agree or disagree with this, but you reminded me. So in uh, macroeconomics, John Maynard Keynes said that um, we shouldn't be focusing on the long run, we should focus on the short run, because in the long run, we're all dead. And then people have quipped, well, today we're living in the long run that he told us not to worry about. I wonder if that's the kind of the case with nuclear power. If you know, decades ago we were saying, oh, you know, no, you know, nuclear's not the way to go. Well, now we get to live with the decision we made a few decades ago. Yeah, we see this kind of thing constantly from environmental groups and, uh, ten, well, I'll say some elected officials. Um, what happens is they say, well, drilling is not going to increase oil and gas supplies for another 10 years. It's okay, but exactly, we're living 10 years away from the last time they said that. So it's a process, like, like uh, Michael said, that you, know, you need to uh, avoid the wave. To avoid the wave, you keep constant inputs going in. And so, yeah, that's, nuclear is exactly that. So is natural gas, so is oil, mm -hmm. so is coal, so are all of these things. So Jason, what's one takeaway you had today? Uh, there were several, but uh, the supply chain issues are exactly what we're seeing in the energy issue or the energy areas because it takes uh, years and years to get um, drill rigs and that put together, the financing for all of these things. That's, that's having your background in the energy industry and also supply chain management. I mean, that's got to be something that's impacting your work as well. Yeah, the risk of uh, investing a couple hundred thousand dollars in a in a partnership to drill a well, with the with the government being against drilling of wells. I mean, investors go, I can find better places for my money. Right. Uh, I don't need to take this risk. Uh, so that's shut down investment in let's call it YOCAT or 
wildcat drilling, things like that, which is most of the fracking that went on in, in the Dakotas was ind independent drillers, which shut down. One so, quick takeaway yeah. for you, uh, Kevin. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just remembering buying a house in 1980 with an 18% mortgage rate. And uh, my wife and I survived that. We had four kids and we needed a house and 18% was, well, 20% was deemed loan sharking. In Chicago, you got arrested if you charged 20%, but 18% on your house was okay. Uh, I hope we don't get to that point, but uh, if we do, you know, you can survive it. Things go, the wave goes up and down. Now the interest rate is 6% or something like that on a 30-year mortgage. That's far lower than 18%. So I'm optimistic. You know, we'll live Great. through it. Well, thank you. Thank you all. This concludes our program today. And I think you can tell why our classrooms are so dynamic with thought leaders like these touching on topics that are so relevant and pertinent to us every day as citizens. If you value programming like this and value liberty and free enterprise, consider Eastwood University's ability to continue programming like this. We have, and you could make a donation to us. We're a not-for-profit university and we would value that. We value your support. We value your viewership. Please join us again next month for news from Midlands University, a program by Northwood University. This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.